Well, hello, everyone. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor here at Atlanta Christian Church, and uh, we have begun a six-week series of reflections on our three core values uh, here at Atlanta Christian Church. Those values are community uh, with others, growth in our faith, and service to those in need. These three things are really at the bedrock of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, And so we're each year we take a few weeks out of the year and spend some time on these. And uh, I'm kicking it off with this uh, reflection, this sermon on the word community. Uh, we had hoped to record this live, uh, but the recording didn't work. And so you're getting it podcast style uh, with no live audience, uh, but you feel free to laugh, to amen, um, to rattle your jewelry whenever you want. So Uh, during the sermon. And so that's that. Our text for the morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. I'm going to read that, and then we'll get right into this um, first session on uh, the idea of community. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, the writer writes, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. I love that word, toil. For if they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now this is a classic go-to text when we're thinking about the crucial role that community plays and togetherness plays and support plays in our lives. This doesn't stand alone, by the way. The Bible is filled with such things, such reminders. Think about how the Bible even begins. We have this wonderful creation poem, and then we move into this very human scene of a garden, and it says that God created Uh, Adam, and the word for Adam, the Hebrew word Adam, just simply means human. So there's this sense that what God has made is not yet complete. And uh, there's this incredibly powerful verse where it says this in Genesis chapter 2. You know, God saw that the, he, he saw Adam, Adam, and he said, it is not good, it's the key phrase, it's not good that man should be alone. Now, a lot of people make this passage a wedding passage, and I guess you could fit a wedding into it, but it's not a wedding passage or a marriage passage. It's a passage about isolation, because God does create uh, a helper for the person, uh, someone to do life with, someone to walk through life together, and that is really the central subject in, uh, in this part of the text, is that it's not good that someone should be alone. And what's interesting is that in the first chapter of Genesis, after each day of creation in that wonderful poem, uh, it all, each day ends with God saying, and God saw what he had made, and it was good. And the very first thing that God says is not good is this sense of isolation. Not solitude, not getting away, not doing a walkabout, not saying, I just need to check out for a day or so and take a break from you people. That is all fine. In fact, highly recommended. The subject here is isolation, being completely alone in our toil, in our struggles, and in the lives that we live. And Jesus 
even summarized all the teachings of Moses and the prophets by saying that our created purpose is to love God and to love our neighbor. And both of those loves are at their core about community and togetherness and support from both God and others and the support that we give our neighbor as well. So even to love God and to love neighbor is rooted in the sense of the importance of not being alone or isolated. It's why the word community is so central to church life, to parish rhythms. <clears throat> not because it's an effective strategy at keeping people connected and around and involved in the church, although that is a symptom. But it's central because of it's because it's a behavior of the congregation that really takes to heart what it means to be human. Again, the Ecclesiastes text, verse 10 of our text, for if they fall, one will lift up the other. Such a beautiful picture of what it means to move through life with a helper. Now, there's a deep-rooted philosophy in our text as well, and all throughout the scriptures, it's very consistent. And it's this philosophy of life's difficulties and how hard it is to live in this world. Amen? This is where you say amen. It's very hard to live in this world. I can't imagine any of you are saying to yourselves, as far as living in this world and succeeding and doing everything well, I'm nailing it. Like no one should say that and think that they're being honest about their own life. And if we can understand the philosophy about how hard it is to live a life in this world, then we can really learn the practice of community at a whole different level. So I want to start with this quotation from Frederick Buechner, Presbyterian pastor, theologian, wonderful author. And he has this uh, thing that he says when he talks about uh, the gospel, which means good news, but he's talking about the story of Jesus. And he says this, and I quote, the gospel is always bad news before it is good news. Now, what he's referencing there is quite simple. In order for us to really understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on our behalf, we have to first have a real self-awareness of who we are. And that's always bad news because none of us are perfect. And the bad news is the self-awareness of really understanding how much we need God's grace and God's mercy in our lives. That's why he says the gospel is always bad news before it is good news. If, if we don't confront the bad news about ourselves, about who we are, and about our need for grace and mercy, then we go right to the good news of the gospel, and uh, we're frustrated in our faith for years to come, simply because we haven't yet wrestled with why in the world do we even need a relationship with Jesus anyway. And so, I love that phrase because it's a springboard into how I want to talk about community. It's always bad news before it's good news. So I want to start with the bad news. But I want to start by telling you a little bit about my story. Many of you know this because you've been a part of this church for a long time. But my uh, last year or two uh, has taught me the bad news about life. Uh, For those of you who don't know, and for those of you who do, I was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. Um, I don't even remember when. I think it was September of 20, 
20, August of September, August or September 2020. Uh, but about a year before that, I was living in great pain, physical pain, trying to figure it out, um, going to the physical therapist thinking I just had a bad back and trying to deal with it that way. And then um, all sorts of other like workarounds because I just didn't want to go hear anything like terrifying. I was definitely terrified, but at the same time, you know, it was just pain. It was just stuff that I could ibuprofen my way through. Uh, But you know, when that didn't work anymore and it was unbearable to do anything all day long, I finally um, went into the doctor and we started to work through this. And that led to a, that awkward colonoscopy uh, that every man should get, by the way. Uh, I'll be saying that the rest of my days, but uh, had to sign up for that. But it took some time, and it was a it was sort of a frustrating situation because it was COVID, and so getting in was hard. And um, but they did get me on the schedule. Once I made the appointment, it was still going to be four to six weeks out. I can't remember exactly. But uh, when I went and they did the colonoscopy, he came back, and uh, my wife and I were sitting in the waiting room, and the doctor came in and he handed me a piece of paper and on the piece of paper was a picture of what he saw and all he said was this is not good and my wife was a bit shocked she wasn't expecting to hear that and I said to the doctor and I quote what are my chances you know and he talked to me a little bit about it and then I got a letter in the mail a week later and it said we did not find any cancerous tissue, which was confusing. And the doctor called me and said, I don't think this is correct because I've seen these things, you know, a thousand times over, and it doesn't look good. And so I had to go back in for another one, and that took some time. And then it was weeks later that I finally heard the results that I had colon cancer. And everything changed in that moment. I was here at work when I got that news. Uh, My staff and I just laid on the stage. We held hands. Um, I told elders, key friends uh, in my life, both here in the church and outside of the church, that I didn't want, you know, them to find out just simply through an email. And then we sent message to you people, (laughs) the church family, as to what was going on. And it was interesting because... um, that began a journey of flirting with mortality. And the bad news that I have learned, and this is what I want you to hear, is that through all of this, through the pain, through the diagnosis, through the chemo, through the radiation, through the surgeries, what I have come to realize is that life itself is 100% deadly. All things must pass. Or to quote the great rock and roll theologian Jim Morrison from The Doors in his song Five to One, no one here gets out alive. And that's true. And it's the bad news. This is, of course, not joyful news. It's not the news that we, especially in the West, handle very well. Our fixation on avoiding deterioration is tantamount. I mean, everything we do in our lives 
you can almost interpret as avoiding the idea of death. Any thought of deterioration of our bodies, of our minds, even our relationships, our influence, our careers, we don't like it. The fact that things break down, we don't deal well with that. We try and find ways to cover over that or to prolong it. But the thought of deteriorating, it does not sit well with us. We spend so much of our lives trying to avoid the subject altogether. I really have grown to see, because I laid in the hospital for over a month and watched a lot of TV, but it seems as though almost every single commercial is about self-renewal. It doesn't even matter what it's about. Uh, I don't know if I'm buying a car or if I'm uh, changing the world. These are how the commercials come at us now. And by the way, because we just had to purchase a new car, uh, no car purchase has ever brought me the joy and the clairvoyance that the commercials promise. I don't know if you've dealt with that, but it's all a lie. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you watch TV, you watch the ads, you read the things. It seems to be this constant subterranean or even surface-level promise that you can avoid deterioration. But the biblical writers, from beginning to end of the Bible, <clears throat> they share this philosophical view of life in the world that could be described as something like low anthropology. The Bible carries no aspirations of invincibility or of arrogant legacy or of beating life at its own deadly end. It carries no illusions about those things. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 51, verse 6. This is a real pick-me-up, so grab a drink and enjoy this one. But the prophet writes, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and those who live on it will die like gnats. That's uplifting, isn't it? But this is how honest the writers of the Bible are when they think about life and death and the bad news of mortality and deterioration. But part B of verse 6, in that same passage, the prophet writes, But my salvation will be forever, and my deliverance will never, ever end. So there's this little bit of hope there. There's this little bit of um, light that comes into the bad news, that we get the good news. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, uh, in chapter 8, says it this way, verses 18 through 23, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was sub subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. What a beautiful description. That even creation itself is in pain 
And it has this hope, like labor, that some sort of new life is coming. Paul continues, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, that we ourselves too will experience some kind of renewal. The Jews have a phrase um, in Hebrew, the Hebrew phrase is olam ha'aba, which means the world to come. There's this real sense that uh, in the scriptures that though the bad news is real, that deterioration happens, that mortality is a thing and nobody can avoid that. There is this promise, this light of a new creation, of a new world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, he says, If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul even really pulls this, like he's flirting with some really incredible theology. He's just saying, he's pulling Jesus to the very edge of life and death, and he's saying, even if we believe in Christ, but it's only for this life, you know, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Such powerful language. And so what does this have to do with community? What does this have to do with anything about relationships and how those work in our faith? I like what the writer of the New Testament letter of the Hebrews to the Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Now, just some background here. Hebrews was written to what we call second-generation Christians. It means that they were not around when Jesus was alive, and so their faith is based on the stories and the testimonies of people who came before them. So they are in very uh, many ways just like you and me. Like We are basing our faith and our hopes on the stories and the testimonies of people who've come before us. And that's not easy. And um, the recipients of this New Testament letter are struggling with their faith. They're struggling with uh, hope. They're struggling with that positivity of a new world and a new life. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, says to them, and let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see, and this is so important, the day approaching. The day. The day is this thing, again, that just lives in the scriptures, that God is bringing renewal to our bodies, to our world, to the creation itself, that that day will come. The bad news is, We die. We don't live forever in this life. But a day is coming when we will be with God forever. And whatever that new creation looks like, I don't know. The Bible has all kinds of poetic language surrounding it. But it sounds like it's going to be pretty awesome. It sounds like it's worth counting on. And the writer here encourages and challenges these Christians, these followers of Jesus, to hang in there because there is a day coming. And the way that he instructs them to hang in there is to do so together. Jesus says in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and maybe you've heard this phrase before, but he tells the disciples that you are the salt of the earth. And there's been so much discussion through the centuries about what that means. And I believe that all of the discussions are probably correct. 
that salt had so many uses in antiquity, um, whether it's just simply for flavor or it was used for currency, it was used for collateral, it was used for so many different things. Um, and so all of those things could be interpreted into the life of those who follow Jesus in some way, but it also, salt was also a preservative, and we have to read it that way too. One of its many meaning, meanings is that it also preserves. It's as if Jesus is saying, almost slanted, winking, out of the corner of his mouth, that the church's job is to meet together and to hold off, to preserve one another in the midst of decay, in the midst of a world that is deteriorating. We still continue to circle up and to encourage one another that salt doesn't save, it prolongs, it preserves, and that we are in some way called to do that in the lives of those around us. Community is the spiritual behavior of sitting with people and remembering the future that God has promised and doing so in the midst of a deteriorating world. I think that is the key. Now, there's a lot of practical things about community with others, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks because we're going to circle back around to this in the second half of the series But today you get the 30,000-foot level look at what the Bible means when it's talking about community. And it has so much to do with preserving one another in the midst of a deteriorating world. And so I leave you with that, and I pray that uh, you're able to reflect on these things in the coming days and weeks. Grace and peace, and have a great week.